The scripture text this morning is from Micah, chapter 6, verses 1 through 8, and I'll be reading from the NIV version this morning. And this is the last in our series on the Minor Prophets for now. Well, we've done six of them with Micah this morning, and then uh, I'll pick it up probably next summer with the other six. But we'll be moving into the Epistle of James. That'll be on the 18th uh, of September. Next week I'll be preaching on baptism as we are having a baptism in the church. So we'll be going to James next if you want to read ahead there. But this morning we're in Micah. The title of the sermon this morning is, What Does God Want From Us? What does God want from us? And our text is Micah chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. And as we read this text, you will hear three different parts being read here, the three different kind of actors, if you will. It begins with the Lord speaking all the way up to the first six verses. And then a representative Israelite speaks in verses 6 through 7. And then Micah speaks in verse 8. And see if you can pay attention to that dynamic dialogue that's going on here in this part of God's word. Micah chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. What does God want from us? Hear now the word of the Lord. Listen to what the Lord says. Stand up, plead my case before the mountains. Let the hills hear what you have to say. Hear, you mountains, the Lord's accusation. Listen, you everlasting foundations of the earth. For the Lord has a case against his people. He is lodging a charge against Israel. My people, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you? Answer me. I brought you up out of Egypt and redeemed you from the, house, from the land of slavery. I sent Moses to lead you, also Aaron and Miriam. My people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, plotted and what Balaam, son of Beor, answered. Remember your journey from Shittim to Gilgal that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. And here's the second speaker, the representative Israelite. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of olive oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? And then here's Micah. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, and to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. This is the word of the Lord. Have you ever dealt with someone that you just can't seem to please? Someone, no matter how you try, how hard you try, they never are satisfied with what you do. You try to please them, but they're never happy with you. And they never make it clear exactly what they want from you, how to make them happy. You don't know even how to do it. Now, maybe you had that experience with someone in your life. Maybe it's a supervisor at work. You just never seem to satisfy. Or maybe it's a colleague or a family member. Or maybe it's a spouse or a significant other. And eventually, when you're in those type of situations, if you're anything like me, you get to that point in that relationship, right? You get to that point of where you're exasperated. And you just throw up your hands and you kind of you look at them and you say to them, what do you want from me? Have you ever had that happen where you've said that to somebody? What do you want from me? 
Well, if you've ever felt like that, that's exactly how Israel was feeling in our text. That's how they were feeling about their relationship with God. What do you want from me? Micah 6 is essentially a lawsuit. God is bringing a lawsuit against his people. It's called a covenant lawsuit. He's dragging them before the heavenly courts with the foundations of the earth and the mountains as witnesses. He's bringing charge against his people because he's saying to them, I have done all this for you. I brought you out of Egypt. And implied in that is that they have failed to reciprocate to God's love. They they have failed to do what God wants from them. And what Israel feels like is, what, what do you want, God? How do we please you? And you can hear them say that. They're almost kind of frustrated. They're almost being kind of sassy and sarcastic to God in verses 6 through 7 when, they, when this representative Israelite speaks back. You can hear it in his or her voice. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before with burnt offerings and calves of a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousand rivers of olive oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Do you hear what that person is saying? It's essentially, God, what do you want from me? What do I have to give you to please you? Have you ever felt that way in your relationship with God? As if God is some type of passive, aggressive supervisor, like always wanting things, you can never really figure out exactly what it is. Have you ever felt like saying to God, what do you want from me? Well, if you have, this is the sermon for you. Because this is the place in the scripture here in Micah, in Micah 6, 8, where God gives the recipe to the secret sauce, right? He tells us exactly what he wants from us. And it boils down to just three things. And this morning in our time together, we will unpack those three things to understand better what it is that God wants from us this morning. So let's begin unpacking those three things. What does God want from us? Well, the first thing he wants from us, we find right in the beginning of that first verse, there, or the first part of verse 8 of Micah 6. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? What does God want from you? To act justly. The first thing that God wants from us is for us to act justly. Now, what does that mean? What does that mean, to act justly? Well, the first thing we should take note of is that it is an action word, right? God says here he wants us to act justly. This is not about theorizing about justice. This is not my senior thesis on John Rawls' theory of justice. This is not an intellectual exercise of ascertaining what is justice. This is about doing justice. Our culture is very consumed with the idea of justice. We talk about it all the time. But God doesn't want us to talk about it. He wants us to do it. He doesn't want us to post justice, right? To to post how just we are on Facebook or Instagram and say, hey, this is, uh, look, I, I am totally for justice. He doesn't want us to think justly. He doesn't want us to post justly. He wants us to act justly. 
He wants us to do something. But what is it that he wants us to do? What is justice? Well, I think James Luther Mace gives a helpful definition of what this is about. This is what he says. To do justice, according to Micah, here according to God, Mays writes, is to uphold what is right according to the tradition of Yahweh's will in the conduct of life. According to the tradition of Yahweh's will in the conduct of life. So what he's telling us really is two things about this. He's telling us, first of all, that God defines what justice is, at least when we're talking about the Christian life and the Christian walk, what God wants from us. God defines it. So there is a difference between biblical justice and social justice. They are two different things. There's a lot of talk about social justice in our time. That is justice as our society defines justice. And often, that does not accord with Scripture. Sometimes it does, but sometimes it doesn't. This is justice according to God's will, according to how God defines it. Uh, this past uh, week, or a week before, uh, the president forgave a portion of student loans, and he did that under the guise, using the rhetoric of economic and racial justice, social justice. Now, the question is, is that biblical justice? Well, that's a good question. It's a question we have to ask about everything that we uh, consider in our culture, in our society, in ourselves. There's a difference between biblical justice and social justice. And sometimes biblical justice leads to social justice. And sometimes social justice leads to the church being convicted that we are not doing justice. They are not the same thing, but often they overlap and are interrelated. And we would hope so. Our desire is to see God's kingdom come, to see biblical justice be social justice, and one day it will. Those Venn diagrams will merge together in the kingdom of God when it's fully realized. But they are different things. This is justice as God defines it. The second thing that definition tells us is that this justice is relational. It's about how we treat other people. It's not justice to God. We're not doing justice. God doesn't say, act justly towards me. He's not worried about himself. He's worried about other people and how we relate to other people. It's this justice is treating other people according to God's standards as God would have us to act. Now you say, oh, how do I know what that is? How do I know what God's will for justice is with regard to other people? Well, the first thing you can do is go to the commandments, the Ten Commandments. Take the number five on. Those are all about how we are to relate to other people. And if you want to go deeper than that, do a word study in the Bible. And what you will find out if you study justice, that word that's used here in this text, and you look throughout Scripture, what you will find is a pattern. That when God calls his people to do justice, he is specifically concerned about the most vulnerable people in society. That we do justice to those who are widows, those who are orphans, those who are immigrants, those who are poor. If you do a study on the word, what you will find is God wants us to be focused on those who are vulnerable and to do justice to them. The first thing God wants from us 
is to, that we would act justly according to his standards as he defines them, relating to other people who are most vulnerable in his society. He has called us to act justly. That's what he wants from us. The second thing he wants from us is also found in that very same verse. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? First thing, act justly, to act justly. Second, and to love mercy. Act justly, second, love mercy. The second thing he wants from us is to love mercy. Now, what does that mean? And here's where it gets kind of hard. Because it's hard to translate this. It's hard to render this. The word mercy here is one of my favorite Hebrew words. It's the word hased or kased. It's a hard word to translate and reduce into one English word. And that's why if you do a survey of English translations, what you will find is a very different uh, types of translations of this word. Translators struggle to take that one Hebrew word, kased, and translate it into one English word. The NIV, of course, translates it here as mercy. The New Revised Standard Version translates it as kindness. The New English Translation translates it as faithfulness. The Common English Bible translates it as embrace faithful love. And John Goldingay, in his translation, translates it as being loyal to commitment. That's really different, right? That's a wide range of translations, and you ask, you're like, which one of those is right? Well, in a sense, all of them are right to one degree. They're not wrong, any of them, but I think the ones that get closest to the meaning here are those that emphasize faithfulness and loyalty and commitment. Because what said is about is really about a covenant commitment of love within a relationship. A commitment and loyalty. Now this is rather hard to grasp and, I, and it's hard to get at this as the translations kind of indicate. But let me try to explain exactly what's going on here. Think of your relationship with God this way as operating on two axes. There's a vertical axis, right? how we relate to God, and then there's a horizontal level or axis to how we relate to other people. And both of those intersect in our relationship with God. And what God is driving at here is that he wants us to act justly to others on this horizontal aspect of our relationship because we love him on this vertical side that we're committed to him covenantally in our relationship with him, what that leads to is a broadening of that mercy from God out of commitment to him to other people. That's really the idea that you are so committed to God that you will reflect him in your relationship with other people. It's kind of a feedback loop, if you will, where we love God and so we love other people. And because we love other people, we're demonstrating our love for God. And that flows back around and around. That's really what it means to love mercy. That's what God says to Israel here. I brought you out of Egypt. I loved you. I showed my mercy to you. And now I want you to show my, show my mercy to other people out of your love for me, out of your commitment for me. Act justly because you love me. 
really act justly and love mercy are closely related. But if you want to distinguish the difference, really, it comes down to this. To act justly is about doing justice. To love mercy is about the motivation for why we do justice. And there are a lot of motivations behind that in our society, in our lives. Sometimes people do justice out of duty or obligation. Sometimes they do justice because they are fearing being shamed if they don't do justice. But what God says is, I want you to do justice because you love me, because you're committed to your relationship with me. I want you to do it out of your commitment, your covenant commitment to me. I want you to love mercy because you love me. To love mercy is doing justice to others because we love God and we are faithfully committed to him. And so we want to do unto others what God has done for us. The second thing God wants is us to love mercy. Act justly, love mercy. And then finally, the third thing that God wants from us. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good and what does the Lord require of you to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. The third thing God wants from us is that we would walk humbly with him. Now, what does that mean? Well, unlike the word hesed that I just talked about, which is used frequently in the Old Testament, this is a unique term that is coined here in Micah. And most translations agree about how to translate it. Most of the translations agree, basically translate it like the NIV, to walk humbly with your God. And that is not wrong, but it might not help us to grasp totally and understand what God is really calling us to do here. It might mislead us a bit because when we think about humility and humbleness we think about self-effacement not blowing our own horn not bringing attention to ourselves but that's really not what God is calling us to do when it says to walk humbly with your God what God is really calling us to do is to walk carefully with our God to walk prudently with our God to walk circumspectly with our God. That's the implication here. That's the real meaning of this. Let me try to illustrate that for you. I told you I, I've taken up hiking recently, and uh, you're going to have to hear a lot of illustrations about hiking. <laughs> I'm going to have a lot of those. Uh, but I, I was out there yesterday, and I was uh, hiking with, with Michelle. And I was thinking about this as I was hiking, how this really is illustrated through hiking, walking circumspectly. And the first part I thought about is, you know, when you're hiking, you'll walk on these trails. And, of course, you want to be in the center of the trail for a variety of reasons. It's the safest place to be is to stay on this path to walk carefully and narrowly on the trail itself. So there's an idea there, right, to walk circumspectly, follow the trail, mind the middle. And then as you're walking and as you're hiking, what you will notice is that oftentimes the roots of the trees, they'll, they'll grow out onto the trail. They'll be raised above the ground. And if you don't watch where you're going, you're gonna, you'll stub him. You'll stub and you'll trip over them. You need to look down. You need to mind your path. You need to walk circumspectly. And I think that is a good imagery for what's being called for here. 
And it often helps. I was thinking yesterday, I was on point for part of it, and sometimes I'd hit, I would trip, you know, and then I could tell Michelle, well, watch out over here, or watch out over there. And in our Christian life, I think that kind of mimics the idea of how younger Christians should talk to older Christians. People who have walked the path before you, because they will have inevitably tripped. And they can tell you where those things are, where those areas where you can go wrong and get off the path, because they've done them themselves. We can learn from those who go before us. So I think there is an illustration there about what it means to walk circumspectly. Stay in the middle, watch your step to help others walk the path. But then I thought a little bit deeper about it, and I think an even better illustration from hiking is that yesterday we were, there was a portion of the trail that was a pretty good-sized elevation. It was pretty steep. And as you were walking up that, there were uh, the roots, the very same roots that tripped you up, also were there as places to anchor yourself, almost like steps as you went on this steep elevation. And as you were walking, you could look for them and you could place your foot carefully and anchor yourself on those roots, almost like a step. And I think that is a better illustration of what God is saying here. He's saying, use my word like those steps, like those places to set your, fur, your foot firmly, to get yourself anchored, to steady yourself in difficult places. Walk circumspectly. Look for my ways and my word. That's what it really means to walk humbly with your God. And I'd ask you this morning, how's your walk? How's your hiking, if you will? Are you anchoring yourself in those places of God's word? Are you just tripping up everywhere? Are you willing to ask other people for wisdom? God wants us to, work, to walk circumspectly. The third thing he wants is for us to walk humbly, circumspectly, prudently with him. That's what God wants. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good and what does the Lord require of you to act justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with your God. That's what God wants from us. That's his list. That's how we unpack these things that God wants from us. Now that we've unpacked them, though, I want to think about them a little bit, to think about this list, how it applies to us, what we can learn from God's list for our lives today. And I just want to make five observations about that. Don't get too panicked. <laughs> They're short observations for the most part. Five observations about God's list. The first one is this. The list is not new. And it's not old. It's not new, and it's not old. Micah 6, 8 begins, He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. What is God saying? I've been telling you this all along. I have shown you what is good. You're asking me, what do you want? What do I want from you? I've told you over and over and over again. Deuteronomy 10, 12, and 13. And now, Israel, what does the Lord God ask of you? What, do you, what does God want from you? But to fear the Lord, your God, to walk in obedience to him, to love him, to serve the Lord, your God, with all your heart, with all your soul, and to observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I'm giving you today for your own good. Sound familiar? God says, I have shown you. This is a very old list 
a list written upon the hearts of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. It's, it's an ancient old list, but it's also brand new and novel. It is the list that Jesus uses. It's the list for us today. Listen to Jesus in Matthew 23, 23. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin. But you have neglected the more important matters of the law. Well, what are they? Jesus gives a triad. You've neglected the more important matters of the law. Justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. This is an old list. It's what God has always wanted. And it's a new list. It's what he wants from you today and what he wants from you tomorrow and what he wants from us as Christians in our lives today. It is old. It is new. The second observation is this. The list is short. It's a short list. It contains only three items. And I would argue, ultimately, it really only contains one item, that these are not three separate and distinct things that God is asking for, but rather they are organically interrelated. Each one is an intensification of the one before. They are, they are organically connected. Think of them like stairs, ascending stairs, and each one is a step higher. I want you to do justice I want you to love mercy, and I want you to walk humbly with me. This is what God is saying, and it's really one thing. Again, James Luther Mays puts it well. He says, the specific requirement is to do justice, which is a way of loving mercy, which in turn is a manifestation of walking humbly with God. God's list is really short. He wants one thing from us. And our lists tend to be long. Right? The rabbis did this. The Pharisees did this. They keep adding to God's commands. God's list is really short. And I want you to think about the lists in your life, the lists that you make. Is your list short like God's? Is it focused on the same priorities as God? Or is it long? God's list is really short. The third observation is this, the list is personal. The list is personal. Not only do we make long lists as Christians, we also make lists for other people to follow. Isn't that right? It's part of the whole kind of culture war kind of things. We, we do this all the time. We tell other people what they should be doing and what they should not be doing, but this list from God is tailored to you. He has shown you O mortal, what is good? It's singular. It's one representative Israelite. He has shown you, O mortal, O Adam, O earthling, O human. He's shown you what is good. It's individual. It's about you. It's God's list for you to follow in your life. And part of our problem is that we look at other people and we tell them. I always say that. You know, I'm an expert on everybody else's life. And we all are. God says, worry about your own life. This is a list for you. Are you doing these things? At the end of John's Gospel, when P Jesus restores Peter, he tells Peter what's going to happen to him. He tells him, you know, you're going to go places you don't want to go and people are going to do things to so you. Basically, he's telling him, you're going to die for me. 
And then John walks by, and, and Peter's like, what about that dude? You know, what about him? You know what Jesus said to Peter? He said this, If it is my will that he remain until I come, what is it to you? What is it to you? And then Jesus said to Peter, follow me. Emphatically, he says it, exclamation point. Follow me, Peter. Don't worry about the other person. This is what I require of you. That's what God is saying here. The list is personal. Fourth, the fourth observation. There are no negatives on this list. There are no negatives. There are no thou shalt nots. This is a positive list. It's entirely positive. God is showing us how to thrive and live well in covenant with him, how to please him, and that is expressed in terms of doing rather than not doing something. And again, I think often on our list as Christians, it's really often a negative list about what not to do. Here God tells us what to do. And I think we would be better off as Christians if we could focus on that, on that positive message of what God is calling us to do. Look at your list. Is it full of knots? God says, do justice, love mercy, walk humbly, do these things. And then fifth and finally this morning, the list is about what God really wants. The list is about what God really wants. And what the list reveals is God doesn't want things. He doesn't want stuff, right? Israel wanted to give him stuff. What do you want from us, Lord? Do you want me to give you burnt offerings, calves a year old, the thousands of rams, 10,000 rivers of olive oil? I kind of like that one myself, actually. Love olive oil. And they go through all these things, right? And it becomes even more intense to, you know, the, the last one is, shall I offer my firstborn? What do you want, my firstborn? You know, we say that all the time. That's what they were saying. They're like offering God all this stuff. And God says, I don't want any of that stuff. I don't want that outward stuff. I don't want your sacrifices. I don't want your olive oil. I don't want your firstborn. They're not on my list. But what I do want is this. I want you. I want your heart. I want you. That's what God has on his list. James Luther Mays puts it this way, Micah's audience learn that God is not after things, but people. It's not you. It's you, I should say. It's you, not something God wants. He wants you. That's what this list reveals. And it reveals this in such a positive way. God loves you so much, right? God so loved the world that he gave his firstborn. He so loved the world, his one and only son. He loves you so much. And what he wants from you is your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. He wants you to love him with all of that. He wants your heart to love him back. He is the God who has brought you out of sin and bondage and he wants you to love him back and he wants you to love your neighbor as yourself. That's really what Micah 6, 8 is about. He wants you, your heart. He wants all of you. 
And the way we show that is by doing justice and love faithfulness and walking circumspectly in God's way. He wants all of us. Now, you're probably thinking to yourself, I mean, I can't do that. I can't give God all of myself. I mean, I, I can't even figure out, you know, sometimes how to do the right thing. I, I trip all the time when I'm walking. I hit those roots. I, I don't anchor myself well. I sometimes fall as I'm walking. I, I can't give God this stuff that he wants. He wants all of me. That's 100%. I can't give that. And you're right, you can't. But this is the gospel. He can. He can. God can. Augustine had a prayer, and he prayed this. He said, grant what thou commandest. Praying to God, grant what thou commandest, and command what thou dost desire. Do you see what he's praying? He's saying, God, ask of me anything you want, but please give it to me. Because I can't do it in myself. That's exactly what we come to when we face Micah 6, 8 in the mirror. We can't give God what he wants because he wants all of us. But God has granted what he has commanded and he did it in Jesus Christ because Jesus Christ is the perfect fulfillment of Micah 6, 8. He's the only one who always acted justly, always loved mercy, always humbled himself in walking faithfully and circumspectly with God, doing God's will rather than his own. Jesus is the answer to Augustine's prayer and he's answer to our prayer. For in him and through him and by him, we can please God. In Christ, we can give God what he wants. And what does God want? He wants you, your heart, all of you. Let's pray.